0: Good afternoon and welcome to today's CME activity. There is no commercial support and the speakers and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interests. You will receive a SurveyMonkey link after today's activity. If you're in person, you'll receive the actual um, link. If you're viewing online, we will post it into the chat section. And if you're viewing after the fact, you'll find the survey link in the description section of the video. If you have a question, please enter it into the chat, and we will ask at the end of the presentation. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Kyle Armstrong. Dr. Armstrong is a graduate of Kansas City Medical School and went to residency in psychiatry at Oklahoma University in Tulsa. He has a degree in bioethics and joined NGHS in 2020. He is currently serving as the inpatient medical director at Laurelwood and is most recently working to build our emergency psychiatry services within the Northeast Georgia health system. Join me in welcoming Dr. Armstrong
1: hello everyone thank you for joining us today so I'm going to be talking today about models for treatment and recovery and I certainly thank we have a number of our therapists here today so I feel like I'm doing their lecture for them um, <laughs> but uh, certainly in the ED we do we start a lot of these processes so um, and we talk about how we address treatment um, and, and those kinds of things. So today we'll talk about SBIRT, which is Screening, Brief Intervention, and Treatment, or Referral to Treatment, as a model of care. So what I'd like to do today actually is build us from immediate interventions and moving into more substantive interventions. So longer courses of treatment, uh, what to think about recovery models, whether that's Uh, inpatient rehab, peer support, a lot of those things. So those are more on the more intensive treatment, but we start with SBIRT, which is really our screening processes that we do in the ED. I know a number of primary care physicians also engage in these uh, types of models. Um, and we can, we'll can. we have a little bit of time to also talk about motivational interviewing and those kinds of techniques because I feel like those are really good for any chronic condition, uh, including substance use disorders. So I think it's really important to remember uh, motivational interviewing and to uh, talk about those things. So we'll build from SBIRT and we'll um, move into some of the different recovery models that we have. Um, And just, you know, going back, that's my coffee addiction right there. So I don't know. Well, Celsius right now had probably a few too many. So if I'm jittery or shaking, that's probably why. So that's what we'll do today. Um, I like this one. Explaining recovery to someone not in recovery is challenging, and it's especially challenging. I think when I I myself am not in recovery, trying to sh- explain recovery to other people who aren't in recovery. But that said, we have some great people. We have people who work with us in the emergency room. We have peer supports. Uh, we have a lot of. Um, resources to use out there that might be more helpful. So I do like this. I think it helps us um, understand uh, recovery a little bit better and also put people in recovery in contact with uh, people who we are trying to get into treatment initially. Um, So I really liked this definition of recovery. Recovery is a process of change through which individuals improve their health and wellness uh, live self-directed lives and strive to reach their full potential. Um, this is from SAMHSA. Um, this is their working definition of recovery. I thought it's really person-oriented and and really gets at the why we do what we do um, for substance use disorders, mental health disorders, um, and also it's all about hope. It's all about building. Um, full lives, um, and helping people reach their full potentials, which oftentimes substances get in the way of. So I think this is a really uh, hopeful message, um, and one that I think we can use and think about as we uh, address uh, people with substance use disorders, and we help uh, inspire people, hopefully, to engage in recovery. So this is from NIDA, National Institute on Drug Abuse. So these are some principles that we use when we're uh, uh, addressing addiction treatment. Um, and these, I think, are all relevant to any modality we're going to use in order to treat substance use, from medicated-assistant treatment to any of the therapies that we can involve ourselves in to the social interventions. And as a general approach, I do like to say that I, I am a biopsychosocial fan. I think that's how I address a lot of the problems I see in my clinical work. So, in in the same way, we'll be doing um, thinking about things in that way and kind of of how I've structured the lecture, so um, some of the things we'll do, like medication-assisted treatment, uh, address the, you know, more biological side of things, um, helping with medicines, helping, you know, with different treatments like that. I'm not going to go into too too much detail in that. I know we have some great uh, pharmacists and other folks, but there's also therapies which we will talk about, and also social things that we can change. So we'll talk a little bit about all of these these places to make some changes. But um, so the principles I think are really important, make treatment easily accessible. So many layers of care, whether it's starting in the emergency room, moving on to the primary care office, to you know more intensive treatment modalities that we think about and trying to remove those barriers at each point. So it makes it easy uh, to use that. I think doctors uh, Prasad and Huntley talked about that in their lectures. Um, Motivation, using their existing motivation. We'll talk about motivational interviewing during this lecture as well. Um, I think it's very important for, again, addressing any sort of chronic condition. Building trust and rapport, uh, one of, uh, in creating a safe space uh, for people uh, as as we go through treatment. Uh, prioritize retention. So sometimes that involves things like harm reduction. Sometimes that involves, you know, a little bit of risk uh, for a bigger reward. Uh, And determine and address individual treatment needs. So again, focusing on that individual's motivation and what they need in order to accomplish their goals. And always going back to that first uh, definition of recovery. Um, Providing continuous care. So um, I think, we, sometimes we like to end a session and we think it's over, but with substance abuse um, and many of our chronic conditions, it requires maintenance, even when people are doing well and when people are in recovery. Uh, monitor abstinence. Uh, so looking into people's sustained abstinence or whether they've had a relapse and, and addressing those concerns as they come. So looking at those things and, um, and assessing for them is really important. Utilizing the community uh, for support services, I think we do that well as a system, but we got to know where those supports are within our system and elsewhere. And sometimes uh, we don't do it so well either as a a society, but we try to use what we can and put things together that are important. Uh, Incorporate medications, so again, addressing those biological mechanisms. Um, And education, it's such an important thing for patients uh, and people to understand uh, what is a substance use disorder. Uh, Why is it a risk? Why are we even asking these questions? I think we do a lot of screening assessments in our day-to-day work, um, but we don't always explain why we're doing the screening assessments so that's part of the education and a lot of times I use screening assessments to begin a conversation as opposed to the screening assessment be the be end uh, end all so I think that's really important involving family members employers significant others any collateral sources are really important having those supports and oftentimes it relates to existing motivation Um, incorporating evidence-based strategies into treatment um, and improving program administrative capabilities. So I'm going to start off by talking about SBIRD or screening brief treatment and referral to treatment. So this is something that uh, uh, many of us have some experience with. Um, I don't usually do the screening assessments, but it's something I think Um, that is done, and I interpret those assessments. It's important to know what we're actually talking about. For me, in the emergency room, I have a great staff of therapists who are here. I'm actually a little nervous because they're here. I'm like, oh, don't don't judge me, but they do a really good job over there of doing these initial screenings and also initial treatments. So we'll talk about SBIRT, look at the screening um, uh, tools that we can use. There's multiple tools that we can use. And SBIRT is really something that targets people who haven't had a substance use disorder. So in psychiatry, we use our diagnostic statistic manual um, to diagnose a substance use disorder. Well, these folks probably aren't meeting criteria or have a mild version of disorder. So involving them in treatment early on is really important. And to try to address any problematic behaviors or things that might need to be addressed in an early um, setting so and the aim is to offer a full continuum of services for those with a predisposition to substance use disorder Um, and we'll go over the evidence but the USPSTF is pretty strong uh, for doing these types of screening assessments and brief interventions Um, and actually has a lot of benefit in our day-to-day practice, uh, especially in primary care settings and emergency room settings. Um, and it is critical, this is from USPSTF, it's critical for medical professions professionals to be able to identify the early signs of substance abuse in their patients and intervene early, which I think is absolutely pivotal before it becomes um, a health concern, before it becomes an addiction, or even in the early stages of when people are addicted to, to medicine so we can really treat these things. Um, so the advantages of Esper is the initial screening is only 5 to 10 minutes, and if we'll go look at one of the screening assessment tools, and it probably doesn't even take that long to deliver the screening. Um, but I think with education and kind of even filling out the gaps and explaining why we might be asking these questions, Um, It does take 5 to 10 minutes, so it's worth doing. It's for everyone, so it it being universal makes it so that it feels less judgmental and it feels like it's just just another thing on the list that we do need to address to ensure wellness. Um, One-plus behaviors are targeted. We'll see more about that and we'll talk a little bit about that as we look at the screening assessment. And the service occurs in a non substance use disorder setting. So a lot of people that are stigma involved. So we can do these things in the emergency room, which we do fairly often, primary care office, schools. We definitely also do this on hospital force um, as well. So you're probably familiar with this language um, in whatever service you are. Certainly as a physician, we mostly hear ESPR thrown around a lot. Um, And some of us might know what it means and some of us might not but generally we know it's something to do with substance use disorders. Um, so it also addresses how we uh, treat this. So sometimes people, if they're just at the beginning and they have some signs and symptoms that they could be de- developing a substance use disorder, just needs some education or brief interventions, or maybe if they're in those initial stages where something might be developing, um, we can do a brief, uh, another brief, therapy episode, we'll talk a little bit about what that might look like. Or if it's more severe, we can also advance it to other treatment modalities that we'll talk about. So it has a pretty, like we talked about, a strong evidence base and backing from SAMHSA. And SAMHSA is probably, just as an aside, SAMHSA is probably my favorite resource. If you ever have any questions or want to do talk about risk or anything else, they have a lot of fantastic resources on their website to definitely check out and get more information as a general rule. And I thank them for helping me uh, put a lot of this presentation together. Um, so, and the philosophy of Espert, which I think is interesting, is prevention entails more than just discouraging use. It's... Uh, prevention of harms uh, that result from drug use, and also motivating people uh, in that way that this might be becoming a problem. So uh, having people think more deeply about maybe an instance of binge drinking, and maybe it doesn't happen very often, but it's one of those things that can progress into um, a substance use disorder. So being able to address potential consequences and educate about what we see on a day-to-day basis, and what more severe substance use disorder uh, is, helps a lot. There's a few, if you're ever interested, there's a few little videos that I feel like are pretty poignant about how substance use disorders can develop uh, and become something more severe and something that we definitely uh, want to address early on so it doesn't become something that's life altering. Um, So uh, screening. So uh, the basic philosophy is we screen pretty early on and we screen often. Uh, in various medical settings. So there's a lot of different screenings we use, uh, you know. uh, There's the the audit, the alcohol use disorders identification test, the drug abuse screening test, alcohol smoking and substance involvement screening test, and then from medical school our CAGE test, uh, which I think uh, we're all very familiar with. So these are all screening tools, they don't tell us much about substance use disorders, Um, as a diagnosis but they let us know if there might be a problem developing and then we can if there is a bigger problem we can use dsm and other modalities to help us come to a more clear diagnosis so just so you know this is um the one of the expert evaluations pretty easy simple straightforward um an annual question air that we like to confirm in, say, a primary care setting, so this is something we can do. We can, of course, always do it on a hospital floor or in an emergency room. and I think we do. We are pretty regular in in doing this pretty easy assessment. I like it because it also shows, you know, what does one drink actually mean, Um, which some some people might underestimate how how much they're drinking. Uh, So it kind of helps people picture uh, what that drink is, and then... Um, it's pretty simple question. How many times in the past year have you had five or more drinks for men and four more drinks for women? And then drugs, it asks uh, a simple question. So um, it's pretty basic. This is an annual questionnaire. It opens a little bit of conversation for maybe why is this important? Why do we need to talk about this um, in various settings so we can always do some education, brief Bits of education with this. Now, if this pops positive, we can always move to some of our uh, other questionnaires. So we'll um, see the audit here, which I think is a pretty good one, one that's commonly used on the hospital floor, just so you have an idea of how it's scored and what kind of questions are asked. Um, so, uh, and I know at our facility, we use one that's geared more towards adolescents, but we can also gear some of these more towards adult patients, and there's certainly different um, uh, modalities and different changes we can make to these assessments to address to specific patient populations, Um, and that's certainly something to dive into the weeds about if if you're concerned or want to ask more questions. But this is a great basic assessment for alcohol use. Um, The other thing, it also has pretty direct uh, explanations and action uh, elements that you can use, Uh, to help make your decisions. Um, And that's one of the reasons I do like, uh, just for your edification, SAMHSA resources. They do have a lot of scores with explanation and action items that are easy to understand uh, for everyone involved. So um, you know, you can kind of see low risk. So that's just basically education to a little risky, so maybe a brief intervention. harmful, so that becomes maybe we'll have some more intensive treatment and severe, um, some definitely some brief in, intervention, but also consideration of what we'll talk about in a little while, which is more intensive treatment options, both from, uh, from each element, from biopsychosocial element, so therapy, medicines, and social interventions that might be helpful. And this kind of is a similar story for any of the assessments. assessment tools they'll give you some guidance on what we need to do Um, so then now to the treatment piece so we want brief treatment Um, now it's within the expert philosophy it's a uh, specialty outpatient modality that relies on the assessment patient engagement and implementation of change strategies so that can be a little challenging that's why um, if you do start to pop positive, it's good to spend a little time, and we'll talk about this in a minute, and motivational strategies and understanding what's going on. Why is someone using substances? Taking that little bit of extra time to see where and how we can help um, most of all, especially if we're screening. Maybe also it might be reviewing some of the screening questions, like, how did you answer this? What happened? what was the problem? What was going on? So um, as you can have sessions um, that are usually six to 20 sessions, and you'll have different various therapy modalities, whether solution-focused therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, or motivational enhancement, which is basically an enhancement on motivational interviewing techniques to really gauge how someone can enact some change. And I think this is usually the trickiest area for patients and um, physicians and APPs to work in or therapists because it's hard to get someone educated to the point where they want to make some change. Um, there might be some resistance to that sort of change. Uh, that's why you've really got to use a lot of motivational uh, interviewing skills and techniques to really see if someone can engage in these brief treatment sessions um, it is difficult sometimes to implement within primary care offices especially with physicians who are um, who are time strapped and have certain um, expectations, I would say that at at the very least, it would be nice to have more regular visits with a primary care physician or from the emergency room or hospital floor to have really good and close follow-up for anyone who has some risk. Um, Now, these therapy sessions can be done by a number of different Um, specialists, whether nurses, social work, counselors, and oftentimes they're the ones who are intervening, and oftentimes that's what's happening in the emergency room, at least for education, um, for some brief interventions, and that'll happen in inpatient psychiatry as well. Um, And that'll also kind of lead us into this uh, idea that sometimes people do need more extensive treatment, especially as you learn about the person and learn about what's going on in their lives. So it certainly does pose some challenges, but at least you're talking about it and you can address those challenges as they come. So this is a nice little graphic of of kind of the flow of SBIRT. So universal screening. So you do the brief questionnaire, the interview, you can also do a computer assisted assessment. I would recommend if you ever do, and this is a general rule with computer assisted assessments, or even uh, assessments completed before coming into an appointment, go over those re- go over those results and see what uh, try to gauge the risk um, from that subjective standpoint. Uh, sometimes people will answer either not answer very extensively or they'll overreport symptoms. So it's really important that we use screenings as more of an introduction. And um, they help guide our conversations as opposed to a hard and fast rule. So that is one thing I've seen as as we kind of go through this. So you see low risk, uh, no past or current use or low level of use. Um, You might give a pamphlet or some brief advice. Nothing too extensive. Maybe there's, you know, one episode of been drinking or something. You could give them some advice and just advise on the risks. Now you start to uh, get into this area of moderate risk, high use in the past, uh, within recent treatment, or stopped use late in pregnancy, or uh, continued low level of use, so a a more chronic condition. So that's when you'll want to probably do the brief intervention. You'll probably want to have some sessions to talk about it, motivational interviewing, uh, and frequent follow-up visits, even if they're shorter visits. So that's something to consider as we're thinking about risk factors. High risk would be anyone who really meets substance use uh, disorder criteria, not going into DSM criteria, but it's a little more extensive use with patterns of problematic behaviors, affective changes, changes to mood, um, also changes to life, DUIs, legal implications, um, all of those things that we we kind of talk about as, as the problems that come up and affect a person's recovery and affect a person's well-being. So that's kind of my general gauge is if substance use is starting to affect a person's well-being and how they view themselves and how they live their lives, that's when it becomes high risk. We get into the details about all of these other things, but it's sometimes nice to take a full step out and see what, what are we actually worried about, and that's what you'll do with with patient care anyways. And that's what we'll talk about uh, after talking about SBIRT, which is motivational interviewing and motivational techniques. Now SBIRT, uh, sometimes I think we, I know I have a uh, predisposition to wonder how well these little brief interventions work, but the evidence actually shows that they work quite well. So uh, my skepticism is probably deserved, but the research and uh, plays out, and it shows that these are very effective mechanisms, especially for some of our higher-risk groups. Low-risk groups, probably not going to change good results, but for alcohol, certainly some, uh, some good results for our high-risk groups. And then marijuana, uh, uh, for some groups, it does have, have some change, and same thing with uh, cocaine Although cocaine, it was interesting, the stimulants, um, the high-risk behavioral intervention group, it didn't have much change. might speak to the mechanism of how cocaine works and the pretty strong dopaminergic response that it uh, stimulates. So so these are just things to keep in mind that they do help for people that you might more regularly see in a primary care office or emergency room or on a hospital floor. Those are great places to intervene early on. So, and this is uh, part of the preventative service and kind of ranking it amongst some of our other uh, uh, preventative services. So maybe not as good as immunizations, but it kind of ranks up there with colorectal cancer screening, hypertensive screening, influenza immunization, pneumococcal immunization. So uh, pretty strong uh, combined score um, this is priorities among effective clinical preventative services, so range from two to ten, with ten being the best. So it does show some significant benefit for patient populations. For, this is a, for alcohol use in particular. I don't imagine fairly similar results with other substances of abuse. So, I always like to talk about motivational interviewing. Anytime I have medical students, whatever their specialty, I think this is really important. I feel like motivational interviewing is something that works for any sort of chronic disease, whether you're managing substance use disorder or depression, or even things like um, hypertension and hyperlipidemia. So, I think it's something you can use in many ways. We'll focus this conversation on substance use disorders, but and I'm sure you've hopefully learned it in whatever education venue you've learned it in. And I got some of this in medical school. Um, And it's simple, but it's really effective. It's, so I like this quote, uh, motivational interviewing is a way of discussing an issue that draws out an individual's own reasons for changing instead of confronting someone with your own opinions about why they should change, even if these ideas are correct. And it focuses on finding and strengthening a person's own made of motivation to change in accordance with their own values, beliefs, concerns, and goals. Um, so this this is very important because yes, I don't want some of the medical complications. I want someone to stop using, but maybe that's not what their main motivator is. Maybe it's that they wanna maintain a relationship with a loved one. Maybe it's, I don't know, it can be s- simple. I remember I use this for sometimes with patients who have things like schizophrenia who don't want to take their meds for one reason or another, and one wanted to really ride around, and his parents promised if he took his meds, he could ride around in a golf cart. So um, we came to an agreement that he could ride around his golf cart if he took his meds, So that and that would also... Pr- improve insight and understanding that the medicines do help you do that. but So that's one of those things. So you really got to identify what people want and why people want to change. A lot of times when people hit the hospital floor the emergency room, they're having some significant medical consequences. So that's oftentimes a huge motivator for people to change. But there's a lot of other things that people will want to change for. And you have to ask questions and identify why those reasons are and it, um, it is a collaborative effort, which can take some time, but I think it's really valuable if you're able to spend the time and really assess a, a person's values, beliefs, concerns. This is my little Sith Therapy slide. So uh, you can say you need to calm down. That doesn't, that lacks empathy. It's a rude command. It's stating the obvious. But if you're a Sith Lord, good, good, let the hate flow through you. Uh, That's affirming their emotions. That confirms it's normal to be upset, and it helps embrace the unlimited potential of the dark side. So depending on how you want to motivate the person, um, I think you can use motivational interviewing techniques to really get someone uh, to to buy into what you want to do, even if you're a Sith Lord. Um, so uh, principles of motivational interviewing is really helping people understand um, themselves a little bit better. Um, so that's why I like this cat picture and the cat that wants out. There might be an obvious way for us that's out, but maybe it isn't for our feline friend here who's missing an easy solution. Not that recovery is easy, but it really is about a, creating collaboration. So we're working together. We're trying to to make this joint decisions, I've got expertise, and we've all, probably listening to this lecture, have some sort of expertise that we're able to offer someone, um, but I need to know how to apply that expertise. What are you looking for? As opposed to, you know, the simple confrontation, um, drug use is bad, this is going to affect your life in XYZ way, why are you doing that is pretty reductive. in in a lot of ways. Um, It does make for a shorter assessment and probably won't be a very successful one. Um, So it's it's all about taking your time and drawing out ideas about change instead of forcing change. I think sometimes it's really easy to get into this idea that we really want to force a situation because we're especially, I don't know, being in the emergency room now, we have a limited amount of time with patients. We don't have an extended amount of care it's very busy there's a lot of needs a lot of people asking a lot from us so um, so it's hard to not force someone to change and it's easy to ask a question why don't you just change this is not good for you you've seen all the videos and um, we I I feel like folks with substance abuse um, oftentimes know all the stuff that you're saying like it's there we we all have learned that drugs are bad um we know that but it's we haven't really found the motivation or no one's we haven't taken the time to look and and help someone understand what exactly they want out of their life and so going back to that initial definition of recovery and wellness and and bringing that person to that that place where they can uh, have a full life and so what does that mean for someone and it gets tricky sometimes when you start asking those big questions But um, at the end of the day, it's really about having conversations and collaborating and allowing the person to have autonomy um, versus the more authoritarian approach. Now, I think the trickiest one for people is sometimes to roll with resistance. Um, It's certainly something we do when we talk about therapy. When we think about therapy is that there's oftentimes resistance to who we are and how we present ourselves in a therapeutic environment. And oftentimes the resistance is what educates us most about someone's motivations. So rolling with the, the resistance to understand it rather than to contradict it. So that's, that's oftentimes a challenging piece of what we do, uh, but it oftentimes is the most informative thing uh, to help us understand why a person uses drugs to begin with. And that's often the most important piece of, of what we do is to get, get at that resistance piece. And you can also talk about why is someone, why don't they wanna take your high blood pressure medicine or your high cholesterol medicine? Understanding that can oftentimes get you to a point where everyone can come to some sort of um, intervention that makes sense for that person and for that person's life. So basic techniques, um, so, and like I said, we've probably all done this before, but it's good to review because it's so absolutely essential to how we ask questions and how do we interact with others. Open-ended questions, I get in this trap where I ask yes or no questions a lot, but it's better to have open-ended questions and let someone answer the question in a way that is up to them. That. Oftentimes brings out that resistance that will help us understand why someone doesn't want to stop using drugs. So, and then affirming the patient, um, again, creating a safe space for someone to feel non judged. A lot of times people with substance use feel judged. I think there's a lot of societal pressures in that. So, it's something to understand. So, affirming the patient and, and creating a non judgmental space is uh, really important. In psychiatry, we have a term, when we use psychodynamic therapies, it's called a holding space. So that's the big piece of it. So understanding any of the background that might be in there as well. So any trauma, any depression, any other issues. So really affirming that person and creating a safe holding space is really important. Uh, in order to, again, allow that resistance to happen so we can understand better uh, people's motivations to change. And then reflecting with a patient, so being empathetic and allow, uh, allowing a person to understand you've been listening. Um, so and that can come in a lot of ways. I think summaries is the next one. So you can reflect by summarizing, but you can also... Do those little things um, to clarify a question. You can just repeat something that someone has said, or or try to. You know, sometimes we make next steps and inferences, but maybe ask a question about your inference. Like, so this is what you're telling me. So, but it, it even if you're wrong, it shows that you've been listening, and also it shows that you understand that you're making an inference. So you can maybe get some clarity on that person's motivation. And then summaries are one of my favorite things to do. It's a recap, but it also demonstrates that you've been listening. It demonstrates that you can affirm the patient, and um, and it allows you to highlight someone's strengths and reasons for change. So, and some of these techniques also involve um, techniques that we generally use for creating a, holding, a safe holding space. Um, so asking permission is really important. I do another lecture on trauma-informed care. So this is a really important piece. So before uh, anything, I think it's good to ask permission and to allow the person to tell you no and to explore reasons why it's problematic or not. So uh, asking permission is a really important first step. Um, explore a person's reasons for change. Um, these, this can do be, sometimes it's hard to do in a first session, but having someone journal about pros and certainly cons too. I think, of course, we want to focus on the reasons to change, but what's the drawback? Why stop using? Why not just continue? I think, again, that gets to that point of resistance. And if we understand resistance, we can reflect and 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 understand why why that's a problem to begin with. Um, so you can look back, look forward, ask for examples, and explore extremes. So these are very behavioral therapy techniques to explore, um, explore drug use. And then exploring values and life goals and bring out any discrepancies. Certainly if you have some trust with a patient, that's certainly something you can do and challenge uh, some of some of those cons or some of that resistance. Probably recommend not doing that. The first thing you do with a patient, but um, that helps. Explore readiness to change. I always was told to use scales and explore fears. Scales can be helpful. Zero to 10, how ready are you to change? And then you can ask a little question like, okay, so you're a six on your readiness scale. Uh, how can we get you to a seven? And that's often an interesting conversation. So that can explore um, what they're ready to do and kind of their motivation in that moment. And then ask about a decision. So explore why a decision was made. And like I said, as a general rule, these things do take a little time. And, and sometimes it can be frustrating when something someone's dealing with substance use because sometimes it's not... 100% logical or you don't understand, you might not understand all of what's going on. So this is again about a collaborative approach to um, with a patient about change. Um, so we'll move on from motivational interviewing and SBIRT, which are very initial moments of change, and I'll talk briefly about medication-assisted treatment. I believe you have a few other lectures that'll be going into more depth about medication-assisted treatment um, and for various disorders, but I'll briefly mention what we have um, out there. We have medications for opiate use disorder, including naltrexone, methadone, and buprenorphine products. Um, Definitely wanted to give a shout out to Project Lazarus, which is for rural programs for medication-assisted treatment. I know our emergency room and Dr. Ruck, who I think gave you some discussions, is really excited about how to implement medication-assisted treatment at the point of care in the emergency room. So this all builds on one another as a full, comprehensive, Uh, Care model for patients so that they get all they can. Um, For alcohol use disorder, you have naltrexone, acamprosate, and some other options: disulfiram, topiramate, gabapentin. I actually use gabapentin fairly often. Has some fair um, preliminary research. Um, There's, of course, other things you can use. Um, Probably not to the point where I would use psilocybin, but it's certainly on the list as something to explore. Um, But really, uh. Again, a lot of these things are for um, risk reduction. So I think that's something to consider. So, uh, and then for stimulant use disorders, bupropion, naltrexone, rivastigmine, topiramate, modafinil, and then Ritalin and Adderall, which we talked about. And I think it's an important thing to discuss overall, but things like methadone and buprenorphine and Ritalin and Adderall all have good um, research But there's always that discussion of medication-assisted treatment. Well, why are we just giving that same substance? Why are we we just giving more opiates for an opiate use disorder? Why are we just giving more stimulants for a stimulant use disorder? And the answer is risk reduction and also so that um, people can live fuller lives, Uh, And, you know, sometimes for stimulant use disorders, it's, depending on the person, it's covering up ADHD or some other chronic issue. Um, And, yes, is there potential for abuse? Absolutely. And should they probably be a part of some sort of uh, regular monitoring, as we talked about before? I think so, if we're going to be doing these programs. But that said, it can really help people. And also, if there is something like relapse, um, I don't know if I added much about that, about relapse in this lecture. But if there is relapse, it allows for conversations to happen about why relapse. And again, using those conversations and those motivational techniques to explore the resistance, to explore the relapse, because that allows us to make better decisions in a patient's care. And, you know, I I think there was, we were doing some questions for one of my CME projects, and it was asking about, well, so someone fell off the wagon with buprenorphine and it was all about stopping the treatment or do you just continue the treatment? Do you have a talk about relapse? And I was like, I don't know. You got to stop the buprenorphine. You can't give that anymore. Well, the answer per some of these, for the test question, and I think in general, uh, was that the medication is, is helpful and just because they relapse doesn't mean you necessarily stop the medicine. What it really means is you expect explore what was going on that caused someone to relapse. So, uh, And it reduces risk, it reduces complication, it reduces medical admission, um, and it really helps people buy in and build trust for a medical system, a mental health system, so that they engage with treatment more often. Um, I was interested, I I think, um, in some of the new and interesting research for methamphetamine use disorders, which there aren't a lot of um, FDA recommended medicines or any, um, so far with my knowledge. But I think bupropion has is pretty close to having some, uh, some recommendations. But these are all the things that are being currently studied uh, to help with stimulant use, um, which is certainly a huge problem in our area. So there's some things um, on on the horizon. Um, like I said, I think I'm uh, we're hopefully going to start some things in the emergency room uh, with some of the new research that's out uh, to see if we can start treatment there. That certainly our addictions colleagues um, will have hopefully some more options to treat methamphetamine use disorders and cocaine and other stimulant use disorders. So exciting stuff coming down the road. So I'm going to briefly talk about, I've got about 15 minutes. I don't want to take all of our time and allow little time for treatment. But I'll briefly go over some of the therapy no- modalities. So when we think about psycho- biopsychosocial, psycho that was our bio part. This is our psycho part. Um, and the, So the therapy stuff that we can do. So on your test uh, as a medical student, vitamin C, so cognitive behavioral therapy is probably always a good, answer as certainly a lot of skills that are incorporated into many of these different interventions. I think the most important part of therapy is building whole safe holding space, uh, using motivational inter- interventions, whatever modality you use, um, doesn't matter as much, but it is uh, it should be patient-directed and that, uh, that will be important. There's contingency management interventions, so that's the token economy type of interventions. Um, i'm not going to go into much detail on that community reinforcement approach plus vouchers this was a special program that someone did so really using the community approach and i think the vouchers approach kind of used some of those token economy approaches motivational enhancement therapy we talked a little bit about that but that's just motivational interviewing on steroids i guess using some drugs itself so um So that uses those techniques. Matrix model is intensive outpatient treatment uh, that has demonstrated effect and stimulant use disorder. I don't honestly know much about this, um, but it sounds like it's a pretty comprehensive model that uses all of the things that we've talked about. Every intervention, biopsycho and social. I think most people are familiar with 12-step facilitation therapy. Or Well, we'll talk about peer support and recovery programs, but this is kind of an adjunct to that. Um, It's based on 12-step peer support programs, which are a little more extensive in the peer-to-peer setting, but this kind of helps facilitate those discussions, so a good one. Um, And these are more family therapies that I kind of list here, family behavioral therapy, functional family therapy, Adolescent focused, multi systemic therapy, multi dimensional fa- family therapy, brief strategic therapy, and couples therapy. So, a lot of these therapies are including uh, collateral informants, that's including the loved ones. And these are particularly useful as you're doing your motivational techniques for people who find their family as their main motivator. Um, and so, exploring what the family concerns are is sometimes a way to get people to understand and to come to terms with some of the other issues, whether it's health complications or social complications, that maybe the substance use is clouding so far as judgment is concerned. So incorporating a strong support system is oftentimes really helpful. And when I'm looking at prognosis, it makes me feel like we have less of a guarded uh, prognosis for treatment. so, and then there's electronic-based therapy for the kids these days. Um, you can use uh, you can use online supports, addiction comprehensive health enhancement support system. So you can use your smartphone, CBT for CBT, reduce your use, self-help for alcohol and drug use and depression, and therapeutic education system. So there's probably more examples out there that I'm not entirely sure of, um, but these are some ones that you can explore uh, certainly for. Uh, patients who maybe have an anxiety issue or don't want to come into your office, or maybe it's a primary care model and and you can't have them in your office that often. Um, But these are things that they can do to help uh, support them with the use of technology these days. Um, So, and we'll talk about recovery models. So, in addition to the therapeutic models, I kind of place this within the context of social situation and continuums of care. I think, of course, you use some therapy in within these models, but it's not delivered by a therapist. Uh, usually a lot of these, and we certainly have a great um, set of peers here and peer supports that operate within the North uh, Georgia area and within our emergency room, but um, peers are people who are in recovery themselves um, or they're specialized community health workers. Um, So these are probably the most effective interventions that I've seen because uh, I think we go back to that first slide where I don't know what recovery looks like. These folks do. So there's an inherent understanding. There's an inherent safe space. Um, where people feel uh, don't maybe don't feel the stigma or at least the worry about the stigma that they're going to be judged about their substance abuse. They're also knowledgeable about rehab recovery models. Once they get to this level, they've probably spent a few years in recovery themselves. So that's really powerful for some of our patients. So I think um, involving peer supports early on uh, is really important. And I'm glad we have the services uh, as part of um, our emergency room and i hope we can continue those services because i feel like it's very helpful they are also able to follow up when i can't when my relationship with the patient has ended so um, so um, so there are things that are called a community care model so this is one to two years of community care with extended monitoring performance-based incentives uh, alternative forms of uh, service delivery and community supports. So this is just something uh, to think about. Again, it's involving a lot of those therapy modalities to create a social situation that might provide some success. And again, these peer this type of peer support model is for something someone probably with a severe substance use disorder. Uh, so we kind of have gone from SPERT and brief interventions to one to two years of continuing. Uh, Modeling. Now, that said, I would say that um, substance use disorders oftentimes require a lifetime of uh, assessment, uh, which we kind of covered in ESPERT, but a lifetime of kind of vigilance uh, about substance use. So peer specialist programs. Um, So we talked a little bit about that. They do emotional support and mentoring. They provide information. I think that our educational sessions are really even more comprehensive than I can offer. They help with practical tasks and completing paperwork. They certainly help us out um, in the emergency room. And they also maintain contact with the patients throughout recovery. So they have certified addiction recovery empowerment specialists for the funding of uh, Georgia Council for Recovering here within our emergency room. So they've been been doing a lot of great work. They help us give patients access to um, naltrexone and Vivitrol and some of those things that are a little bit expensive. They have some special grants um, that they're able to use. So I've really appreciated um, their interventions here in Gainesville, Um, and I'm, hoping we can get more and more interventions so we have more access and we remove some barriers to care. There's their logo. Um, Of course, there's mutual support groups and self-help groups. There's online and community settings. I think we've all had some familiarity with 12-step recovery programs, Um, 12 steps are pretty standard across the board, but they can help. One thing I always just as a little tip when I'm going over peer support and uh, recovery groups with patients is the more you go, the more likely you are to succeed in your recovery. So trying to, I think 60 meetings in 60 days is the AA mantra. Uh, So especially in those beginning sessions, it's really important that patients go to meetings daily. And patients will sometimes tell me, well, I don't get any use out of it, or it's the same thing every day. And what I'll do is I like to frame recovery as practice. It's like practicing for support. Some days aren't going to be very interesting, but it's about building um, building the relationships. It's about building the mechanisms and behavioral responses that are gonna help you maintain recovery. And then always going back to that initial uh, thing, that initial definition that, we, that I put on the slide. That it's about living your best life. And some days aren't great. Some days are boring. But if you go to a meeting, at least you're in a meeting and not out drinking. So, um, so trying to provide some affirmation that hey, yeah, I get it. Like the meetings are boring, but at least uh, we'll uh, you'll not be out drinking or and you're doing the things you need to recover. Um, so. Um, We also want to make sure, and I think we do a good job of it within our system, making sure that they have uh, co-occurring health conditions treated, so clinical case case managers, trauma-informed services, uh, HIV, and hepatitis C, so making sure they're medical conditions. And I would add to this also making sure depression, anxiety, any trauma-related disorders are addressed. Um, So the other big piece of the social and biopsychosocial is trying to... uh, Do the best we can um, with housing assistance, transportation assistance, and vocational services so the patients feel um, like they have a certain level of care and treatment, and that they also feel like they can lead their best lives so they're not just sober without anything else. Because sober in and of itself isn't very rewarding, even though that might be what we want. So these are the things people want. Um, So, and sometimes our uh, out outside services like we are living proof or some of the other rehab facilities can help with some of these things whether it be housing or vocational services so it's important to address that and we try to do that as we're addressing the full need of the patient so here's my references I would like to point out um, where's the um, so rural prevention and treatment of substance use disorder toolkit I'd like to just give a Quick shout out to that. It's um, something I used a lot to compile these slides. Um, Given our region and certainly the needs within our communities, it has a lot of deeper explanations than I've provided here um, about what to do. It also has some examples of programs that have been implemented in other other places. So it's a great resource to use. Um, I definitely strongly recommend it. Um, And if you want to understand more about therapy, it does great uh, overviews for uh, Physicians and APPs to kind of understand what's actually going on with your patient and how to address the patient. So, I wanted a special shout out to that. And also, the expert stuff is really uh, good on the bottom there. So,
0: thank you. Amazing. Great job.
1: Thank you.